Welcome to Failure to Launch, a podcast for brand managers, entrepreneurs, and innovators about how the biggest brand flops, failures, and fuck-ups have shaped our lives. My name's Sam. I'm a brand strategist, consultant, and designer, and this podcast is my investigation looking through the lens of the four Ps of marketing, promotion, place, product, and pricing into trying to understand the forces behind the rises and falls of brands and innovations all over the world. With me today, I'm joined by Karen Toscano. Uh, one of the most talented designers I've had the pleasure of working with uh, over the years. Karen, you've got a fair bit of experience in designing packaging, is that right? Thanks, Sam. That's a very flattering intro. Um, I have. I have actually been at Fluid for 11 years, which sounds like a very long time, um, but to be honest, I love it as much today as I did when I started. Um, I do. I have over 20 years um, experience and predominantly within the branding and Awesome. And I guess uh, leads very nicely into why I wanted you on today's episode. What do you know about the uh, US juice brand Tropicana? Um, I know the brand Tropicana. Um, I think it was one of those brands that we learned about in uni. It was one of those brands that was kind of seen as um, the way to the way to do things. But then I think my understanding is it ha- had a bit of a flop um, when a redesign happened. Yeah, wouldn't be on this show if it hadn't. Um, but I mean, a lot of our attention today will be on the packaging. Uh, which sits pretty comfortably under the P uh, for product in the marketing four P's. So we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about that, but I wanted to start by sort of setting the scene for you. So the year's 2009. Do you do you remember where you were in 2009? Do you know what? I actually think I was living in Beijing, China in 2009. I had done a two-year stint working at a um, design agency, yeah, in China. Uh, you're walking down the street and you see this giant billboard with the word squeeze it's natural plastered all over it. Uh, if you wouldn't mind describing that ad for the listeners, what are you seeing there? Yeah, sure. I see um, a mother with two children and she's hugging them in a squeeze. Um, and then I see a carton of orange juice sitting next to it. Yep. It's um, black and white. The models are kind of hugging each other. It's very clean. There's kind of white backgrounds and these huge punchy fonts. And this whole campaign is designed to complement this new branding and packaging that's just launched over in the US. The goal of the campaign is to reinforce the idea of an emotional connection with uh, between consumers and the orange juice, reminding people of this positive ritual associated with starting each morning with Tropicana Pure Premium Orange Juice. So this campaign that you're seeing, uh, the National Integrated Campaign launched in print and outdoor channels in January of 2009 across eight key markets around the US. It had an estimated budget of over $35 million, Wow. Uh, with executives yeah. at Tropicana. <laughs> yep, $30, $35 million. Yep. Um, and executives at Tropicana described the campaign as having a significantly larger budget than in recent years. And that also included the new packaging refresh that was hitting the market. So in your opinion as an expert, uh, would you agree that a packaging design change for a major brand would come with a fair bit of Definitely. risk? But it depends what was what was done in the redesign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, PepsiCo, Tropicana's owners, uh, their executives gambled on this huge rebrand and unfortunately they lost and they lost really badly. Just two months later, PepsiCo announced that its sales were down 20%. Uh, and that big $35 million brand refresh that they had just completed was tossed in the bin with a promise to return to the previous packaging. 
So I guess we're here to ask, you know, what part of it failed at launch? The category at the time was that PepsiCo is, you know, one of the largest food and beverage companies in the world. Its annual revenues are more than $39 billion. And its principal business in this period included Frito-Lay, mm-hmm. PepsiCo, Pepsi-Cola, Gatorade, Tropicana Juices, and Quaker Foods. Now, Tropicana is the leading brand in the US at the time. Beverage Daily reported in 2008 that it, did, it had exceeded sales of over a billion dollars. And a 2009 article in the New York Times said that typically about 40% of all orange juice sold each year is Tropicana. So, you know, where do you go from there? PepsiCo execs wanted more. Um, They decided to shake up the brand. And to do that, they hired Arnell Group. To understand Tropicana's brand refresh, it's probably really important to understand one man in particular, Peter Arnell. Of all the things I can say about Arnell, and I've written about 3,000 words on him, he's above all else an unabashed mythmaker. We know for sure he was born in 1953 in Brooklyn, New York, and we know for sure he uh, graduated from Brooklyn Technical High School in 76. Um, according to a print magma profile in 2009, he may have graduated from Columbia Architecture School, but this is kind of at odds with other sources that I've seen. We do know that in a Newsweek profile on him, Arnell claimed that he got his start when he was working unspecified op jobs and attended a lecture by a postmodernist architect, Michael Graves, where Arnell had introduced himself and then talked his way into an internship at Graves' offices. While he was working there, he met a man called Ted Bickford, a Princeton architecture student with whom he started collaborating on books about artists and architects. And the two of them then went off to found Arnell Bickford, and then they began picking up advertising work. By 1985, they're extremely successful. They're booking $4.4 million a year, uh, which is about $12 million in today's money. And they secured contracts with Revlon and then went on to book you know, Bank of America, Chanel, Condé Nast, Ray-Ban, Rockport, and Tommy Hilfiger. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of thinking a bit madman at the moment. He's kind of sitting back. <laughs> um, he's what is it? What time is it now? It's twelve forty-five on a Friday, so he's probably already into his second drink and maybe a cigarette in hand. I can't blame him for that. I mean, for the listeners at home, this is I'm halfway through a very big beer. <laughs> uh, famed architect Frank Geary, who worked with Arnell at the time. Quote, he's manic, Peter's a bold genius, kind of giddy and weird. He understands what's going on in the world. Uh, Another quote was from Bruce Reddit, the exec VP of Omnicom. He said, quote, he's the kind of iconic character that this industry needs. So this man kind of took this single-mindedness to extremes. Arnell himself claims to eat as many as 50 oranges a day as part of a diet that helped him lose 70 kilos in just a single year. And in his book, Shift, which was published in 2010, he explains that this obsession with his fruit has gone so far that it has permanently stained his hands a deep orange glow. That is a bit bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things, I think there's somewhat of the creative genius kind of mentality going on that excuses a lot of behaviours. Well, definitely. I mean, there's certainly some characters out there that are um, quite unique. Um, and I think that's reflected in some amazing work as well. Well, we'll get on to his process and 
creating products. So in 2008, Arnell Group wins one of the biggest clients in the world, PepsiCo. Uh, this comes after a decade of the cola wars that leads to a range of incidents at Pepsi. Um, these include the Pepsi number fever riots in um, the Philippines, the Pepsi Navy incident, which needs an episode of its own all at some point, and the Pepsi Harrier jet lawsuit, as well as the Pepsi Crystal and um, Pepsi AM debacle. They bring in a new CMO um, named Dave Berwick, who comes in and explains that they're going to change agencies and, quote, the change in agencies is being made to refresh Pepsi's communications and to reinvigorate Pepsi's legacy of leading-edge advertising. Immediately, Berwick tasks Arnell with the redesign of the Pepsi-Cola, Diet Pepsi, and Pepsi Max and Mountain Dew logos, as well as responsibilities for Tropicana's advertising campaigns. So the resulting work of the Pepsi redesign, unfortunately for Arnell Group, the immediate kind of internet controversy that takes over the conversation regarding the new logo, it prompts this release of a 27-page brand rationale for the new $1 million logo. And if people thought that Peter Arnell played into stereotypes beforehand, so I'm going to show you um, the uh, document. And I just want you to open it up and um, on page one there, uh, if you want to read sort of the, the title and what you're seeing. Okay, so page one looks very much like a, a white sheet of paper with only a few words on there. Um, breathtaking design strategy on our group with a big work in progress stamped on the front. Yep. Um, do you want to maybe jump down to page six. Um, it's, it's not a long document, but there's just a couple of key pages that I thought we'd pull out. Hmm, page six, uh, universal design principles and essentially a line work outline of the Pepsi logo with a lot of reference to maybe where um, where those shapes were derived from, um, dating all the way back to 3000 BC by the looks of it. Yep. Um, I think we've got the golden ratio. We've got the Mona Lisa. Um, there's... Uh, a whole heap of artworks over the years. And I think they say it's 5,000 years of development that leads to the, the development of the Pepsi logo. So putting <laughs> yourself into the canon of art history is always a big call, but you know, good on them for being really brave. <laughs> and then we'll go down to page 27, last page of the document where we're signing off. Okay, page 27, creation of the identity, the Pepsi universe. Um what am I looking at here? Universe expansion and how that relates to Pepsi orbiting that universe. So um, the creation of the identity is a, somehow related to the rate of expansion of the universe. Um, well, this was the rationale that was given. Yeah? Yep, yep, that's it. Um, it looks like there's a lot of work that's gone into this document, but how relevant it, it actually is to the end brand mark, I'm not I'm not so sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this document drops online, and uh, everybody criticizes it widely. Um, there's a lot of internet kind of you know hate that's going on, and it's probably one of the earliest examples of the kind of hot take in the design industry, where design comes out and everybody weighs in on how much they hate it. Um, luckily, I think the controversy doesn't really hurt the brand in any meaningful way at the end of it. Um, it's really just a distraction from some pretty solid work that's been done to restore the rational kind of brand architecture that's been built. 
this document in and of itself is um, almost irrelevant to the work in a lot of ways, which is maybe, you know, fairly critical of the process that's gone into it. But at the end of the day, it's probably the first chink in the armor of Arnell's reputation at the time. You know, he's come up through the 80s and the 90s as this really positively regarded designer. And then this document comes out and everyone's like, oh, Tropicana is the next big brand to go under the knife at Arnell Group. At a Pepsi press conference in late January 2009, Peter Arnell explains his brief was to, quote, evolve this brand into something current or modern state. And who better take on the challenge of this uh, you know, particular brief than self-professed orange obsessive Peter Arnell? While we don't have much information from other designers working on the project specifically, we do know a fair bit about Arnell's process. So thanks to a number of employees who have spoken out over the years. From a 2009 Newsweek profile, quote, he's the so-called genius. He comes up with the ideas based on his own taste. He likes one color better than another color. That's what it comes down to. There's nothing scientific or thought out about it. So essentially whatever he did, everyone would just believe it would work. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. He's fairly um, self-assured, I I think you could say. Um, And maybe in a way that probably wasn't the healthiest. Um, From a profile by Mark Lipton, author of Mean Men, The Perversion of America's Self-Made Man, quote, One former employee I spoke to who wished to remain anonymous described an incident in which Arnell's male personal assistants was forced to sit under a desk as punishment during a meeting. Wow. Um, Unfortunately, it gets worse. When Gorka did a call for people to name the worst bosses in New York in 2007, Arnell's name came up fairly repeatedly. Quote, he made one assistant lean over while he played her behind like a bongo drums. And he's also been accused of trashing studios solely for the pleasure of forcing underlings to clean up. Unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, I've worked with some strong personalities, but that's really over the top. Uh, It did get worse than that again. Uh, In the 1990s, um, a harassment suit was brought up against him by his former assistants. Quote, the suit accused Arnell of verbally, verbally abusing plaintiffs during fits of rage simply for being women. He would frequently use foul language and abusive language to reduce office workers, particularly women, to tears for the way they took a message, phrased a question, or cleaned the top of his desk. Apparently, his legal defense was, as case law demonstrates, words like stupid, useless, worthless, and incompetent constitute non-actionable protected opinions. The suit was eventually settled out of court. So it's a it's obviously I think not a really healthy kind of workplace where you've got someone with such an iron grip on the um not the people all. working sounds, there. <laughs> sounds like the first place you'd want to leave. Yeah. But I mean he's had such a strong reputation and you know, I think, you know, a lot of people in this industry end up, you know, just saying, Oh, it'll do for now, I'll get the name on my C V and then I'll go somewhere else. A lot of his proclivities weren't really just a distraction either. He'd made them a fairly integral part of his studio structure. One employee wrote to Gorka, quote, What crazy a-hole has his wife as head of strategy in his own company, along with his mistress as head of creative? Everyone knows about it, including the wife, and even knows that he bought his mistress new boobs one year. When clients come in, he actually makes them wait for up to an hour for him. He just sits in his office pretending to be busy. (laughs) Oh, it gets worse. That whole thing aside, it kind of shows more that he's got such strong control 
over his studio that um, he can't really blame anyone else for the design that's resulted. Um, so let's just talk about the design more for a bit. So the brief is to modernize and bring the packaging up to date. So there's a before and after image that I'm going to show you. There's the before and after. Do you want to describe yeah, what sure. you're seeing for um, the listeners? So they're both a two-liter carton of juice, um, the before and the after of Tropicana. Um, the before is um, probably what I remember as being the iconic Tropicana. It has a a big round orange on the front with a unique red and white striped straw um, in into the orange um, with green Tropicana on a slight curve. Um, the after design, I guess, loses that distinctive asset of having an orange and a straw and now has um, orange juice within a glass, which probably makes it look a little bit more generic um, and maybe a bit more of a commodity um, than what the before pack looked like. Arnell explains his rationale in the press conference as, historically, we always show the outside of the orange. What was fascinating was that we had never shown the product called the juice. And as you said, like previously, the single biggest visual asset was really this orange with a straw sticking out of the top. But Arnell said, quote, having said that, we wanted to make sure that the orange, uh, that we take the orange and put it somewhere. We engineered this interesting little squeeze cap here. I missed it when you first showed the visual because it was an orange cap, the same as the original orange cap, but I can see that the orange cap was made into more of a dome shape to, I guess, look more like an actual orange and a little leaf motif has been printed onto the actual box um, just next to the lid so it, it actually looks like an orange. But to be honest, at first glance, I didn't see it. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, um, he was saying that he wanted this uh, orange juice, this little squeeze cap, um, so that the notion of squeezing the orange was implied ergonomically every day when you actually pick up, uh, when you actually went to the actual carton. The skin of the orange is actually replicated on the cap, so it's got a, a little bit of kind of an engineering. Yeah, that's actually a really up. lovely touch. Like, I think if you had done that but actually retained um, the biggest visual asset um, from the before on the front of the packaging, it, it might have actually been quite successful. Um, it's a nice touch and it's a nice way to make a lid more unique and ownable and add an experience to what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. He, he continues on with his explanation. Quote, the idea, of course, is to have a consistency between the purity of the juice, which is coming directly from the orange, the cap, which you squeeze every day, and of course, the carton. The squeeze maintains a certain level of, I guess, power when it comes to this notion emotionally about what squeeze means, like my squeeze or give me a squeeze or the notion of a hug or the ideas behind the power of love and the idea of transferring that love or converting that attitude between mum and the kids, right? So did you did you get any of that? I understand his interpretation of the word squeeze, but whether people think that deeply about it when they're pouring their orange juice for breakfast. I'm not so sure. Uh, one thing that I think was interesting is he, he keeps calling it a squeeze cap. When when he's saying that, uh, I watched the video and he's he, he unscrews the lid and he holds it up and it's just made of rigid plastic. So it's not really squeezable at all. <laughs> um, but that said, I agree with you. Talking in isolation, the, the cap itself, the way it's designed is actually really cool. So he's kind of connecting all these kind of threads together. 
Um, all this effort to connect kind of emotions to the product comes back to the theory of brand love, which was really booming at the time. I, I don't know if you remember, but brand love was this huge kind of theory that was coming out sort of in the uh, late, you know, uh, double aughts of the 2000s. Um, and I mentioned this previously in our Amazon Fire Phone episode with the Amazon.love memo. So if you um, have heard that episode, you would have had a little bit of an introduction already, but it's really hard to overstate just how big of a movement this was at the time in design, branding, and marketing. Um, in fact, in March 2012, uh, the Journal of Marketing uh, was actually titled Brand Love and detailed how a survey has, of students had loved Apple's design. The global marketing elite really flocked to this idea that suggested that from Harley, Harley Davidson to Apple, Consumers bought brands not because of what the brand offered or anything as base as kind of brand recognition or habits, but rather that they had an emotional connection to the brand. And so this whole theory was probably best distilled by Kevin Roberts of Saatchi and Saatchi with his idea of love marks. And he said, quote, love marks are brands that create an intimate emotional connection that you can simply not do without ever. Um, however, in 2023, today, we have kind of the benefit of hindsight and we can see that there's a a lot of talk about you know making a brand resonate emotionally was just that. It was actually a lot of talk and not much else. From Byron Sharp's seminal How Brands Grow, that was first published in 2010, quote, Kevin Roberts says that he came up with his love marks idea very late one evening over a couple of bottles of Bordeaux red wine. He claims to have done research later to prove the idea. However, I've yet been unable to find any of this research. It turned out that the studies, like the one that the original Brand Love article had been based on and the uh, Love Marks idea, were based on very small, unrepresentative samples. They didn't account for differences in markets, functions, awareness, consideration rates, or anything of that for its participants. So I think you know it's a pretty seminal moment that informed a lot of the thinking for Arnell in designing this kind of brand to create you know, an emotional connection. And I don't know about you, but I've definitely seen that brought oh, up definitely. since. On numerous um, products and products that we've worked on before as well. Yeah. I think the that idea of emotional connection, you know, it's so enticing for marketers um, because if not for emotional connection, you know, why do consumers buy what they buy? Um, Byron Sharp suggests a, a much simpler reason. He says, quote, consumers are busy people. They have hundreds of thousands of brands vying for their attention. Uh, brands are a necessary evil. They add a layer of complexity to the buying situation, but they also allow for routines. Um, so by removing all recognizable elements from the packaging and pursuit of brand love, Arnell had removed everything that made the routine purchase simple for people. And that's really typified in a quote from New York Times. It says, quote, uh, others, speaking about consumers, describe the redesign as making it more difficult to distinguish among the varieties or differentiate Tropicana from other orange juices. So you just removed a couple of things and updated the design a little bit and, and people could no longer find it. And I think that's a really interesting kind of lesson for anybody in the marketing industry the, to recognize and understand what are the things that make you stand out on shelf because consumers, you know, a lot of them are buying out of habit and it just gives one more reason to, to no longer recognize that product. Mm, definitely. And, you know, with a commodity product like orange juice, you know, what do you expect to see on an orange juice carton you expect there to probably be a glass of orange juice a wedge of orange a slice of orange um and i think 
yeah, it was it was missed that what Tropicana had was something that was so unique yeah. and different. So um, the price uh, for this product, um, ironically, the rebrand kind of dropped at a time when consumers are actually feeling the squeeze themselves. Um, so this is early 2009 and we've got the GFC. It's in the middle of annihilating America's middle class. I think in September of 2008, they'd seen the collapse of the Lehman Brothers, but it wasn't until April 2009 that the G20 would actually agree to the $5 trillion global stimulus package. So this is dropping right in the middle of those two events. Um, Even in the food field where sales of premium price products typically fare better, they were still suffered as shoppers traded down for lower priced alternatives. According to the New York Times, because Tropicana was not made from concentrate, it cost a premium over concentrate-based alternatives such as Coca-Cola's Minute Maid brand. Uh, In the words of the Harvard Business Review article, How to Market in a Downturn from 2009, quote, consumers who will forego premium brands in favor of lower prices. At the end of the day, you're fighting against reality by expecting a lot of growth from a premium product in the middle of one of the worst recessions that you know we've ever faced. Tropicana's sales actually collapsed in the wake of the redesign. They estimated a decline of as much as 20% of their revenue in just that two months. Um, and in response to that backlash, Tropicana announced it's going to revert to its previous packaging. It's a it's a really big kind of issue for them. And was there actually vocal backlash from consumers or was it just seen in the sales? There was definitely quite a bit of Facebook conversation at the time. Um, this was kind of in the sort of opening kind of uh, you know, social media is now having an impact on the real world. And so mm-hmm. I couldn't find any sort of uh, screenshot examples of the um, Facebook comments that were coming through, but I did see in a lot of the New York Times articles, people were specifically referencing Facebook as being a place where a lot of uh, negativity was being voiced. I think one one quote stood out to me, which was, uh, quote, do any of these package designers even buy orange juice? Mm-hmm. Tropicana announces it's going to ditch all of that uh, design that's been done, all of the $35 million of publicity, um, and unfortunately, you know, for someone like Peter, he never really recuperated from the Tropicana scandal. In February 2010, he travels to Thailand with Martha Stewart to try and pitch a tourism brand to that government saying, quote, I think I can make this place famous for what it's famous for instead of what we think it's famous for. It's unclear exactly what he thought it was actually famous for. <laughs> and unfortunately, Arnell Group never ended up listing Thailand as a client. Then in May 2010, Chrysler Axis deal it had with him. Uh, to design a strange golf cart vehicle that was masquerading as an EV that was named the P-Pod. Apparently, it had little to no safety features, and it was definitely going to have an episode of its own at some point. But at the failure of that, Arnell kind of earns the moniker, the anti-Midas of advertising from CBS. Uh, And then this is promptly followed by Arnell publishing his new book, Shift, a brand lifestyle manual that claimed, quote, you should never have to blame yourself for the things wrong in your career. Uh, The reviews for it were fairly unkind, if I'm honest. I've I've just pulled out one, but it's, quote, uh, Peter Arnell breaks his own arm, patting himself on the back. This book is a narcissistic, rife with name-dropping, self-congratulation, and offered very little in the way of actual advice. Omnicon might have taken the position that Arnell should should have spent more time with his clients uh, rather than writing books, as in February 2011, he's fired from the company that he founded, 
And Omnicom now put his ex-wife in charge of the company. That's the wife who was head of strategy, who's now his ex, <laughs> who's now in charge of the company. And it kind of limps on until March 2013 when Arnell Group closes its doors permanently and that's the end of that studio. As for the brand at the centre of the debacle, from Trefus, quote, Although Tropicana continues to lead the market in the US today, its footing has never quite been as solid as it was before 2009. And according to Statista, it now owns 29.8% of the US market, which is down from 40%, with Minute Maid's Simply Orange brand sitting in a comfortable second position at 26.9% of the market share. Sounds like it was a pivotal point in time for Minute Maid to kind of, yeah, gain and stay in that position. So, I mean, usually we ask at this part, you know, which part failed at launch, um, but, you know, a lot went wrong with this one. I guess it goes to show the power of packaging. Um, look, I think the most critical point was the most distinctive asset that they had um, being the visual of an orange with a red and white straw um, coming out of it was completely removed. Um, and I feel like that was, yeah, that was their failure. They tried to... to move forward with what they thought was being more modern um, but failed to recognise, yeah, what their distinctive asset was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, you keep using the word distinctive asset, which we use a lot in our studio, but, um, you know, that that language comes from Byron Sharp's book that's published in 2010, so, you know, just after this. And he, he kind of obliquely references the story himself. He says, quote, packaging changes are particularly hard on a brand's legion of occasional buyers. And this is why there are so many stories of companies changing a pack and experiencing a sudden drop in sales. Definitely. I mean, we, uh, we talk about all the time in the studio that, um, you know, clients, um, we as designers can get really bored of what we see on a pack when we see it over and over again year after year. Um, but what we forget is that it can sometimes be the, the thing that's the most mem memorable, unique and remembered by consumers. And if you take that away, what are you leaving them with? Yeah, definitely. That's it for me today, but it's been fun hanging out with you. Uh, do you want to just tell the audience at home what you've been working on and where they can find out more about your work? Yeah, sure. Um, I have just recently been working on... Um, a new product from Arnett's, well, it's Teeny Tiny Teddy's cereal. So it's the first time that um, Tiny Teddies have come out of um, biscuit land and moved into cereal. So that's just about, or Juz has just hit the shelves. So you'll see that out there. Um, and along with that, working on a, a new skincare project, which should um, hit the shelves soon too. If you want to know anything more about what we spoke about today, you can just check out the show notes for sources and join us next time on Failure to Launch when we look at another spectacular launch that ended in one of the world's biggest flops, failures and fuck-ups that shaped their lives. The opinions and views expressed on Failure to Launch belong to the individual speaking and do not represent the official views of Fluid Branding.